Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. When they got there, he told them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus took along Peter and the two brothers, James and John. He was very sad and troubled. And he said to them, I'm so sad that I feel as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep awake with me. Jesus walked on a little way. Then he knelt with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, don't make me suffer by having me drink from this cup, but do what you want and not what I want. He came back and found his disciples sleeping. So he said to Peter, can't any of you stay awake with me for just one hour? Stay awake and pray that you won't be tested. You want to do what is right, but you are weak. Again, Jesus went to pray and said, my father, if there is no other way, and I must suffer, I will still do what you want. Jesus came back and found them sleeping again. They simply couldn't keep their eyes open. He left them and prayed the same prayer once more. Finally, Jesus returned to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? The time has come for the Son of Man to be handed over to sinners. Get up, let's go. The one who will betray me is already here. Jesus was still speaking when Judas the betrayer came up. He was one of the twelve disciples, and a large mob armed with swords and clubs was with him. They had been sent by the chief priests and the nation's leaders. Judas had told them ahead of time, arrest the man I greet with a kiss. Judas walked right up to Jesus and said, hello teacher. Then Judas kissed him. Jesus replied, my friend, why are you here? The men grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of Jesus' followers pulled out a sword. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus told him, put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. Don't you know that I could ask my father and straight away he would send me more than 12 armies of angels. But then how could the words of the scriptures come true which say that this must happen. Jesus said to the mob, why do you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like a criminal? Day after day, I sat and taught in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that what the prophets wrote would come true. All of Jesus' disciples left and ran away. Well, this is not a passage we often hear spoken about. And Right up front, I want to ask, who here is under 30, under 30 years old? Just raise your hand. I, I, I want to apologise to you on behalf of the generations that have gone before you. And I want to suggest that I know uh, if you're under 30, you're more likely to uh, be focused on your phone uh, as we go through this service than focused on what I'm saying. But I want to suggest that you particularly need to hear what I'm going to be sharing this morning uh, because our generations haven't taught you how to cope well with suffering, with the dark moments in your life. Our generations, the generation of the baby boomers uh, and then my generation that came after the baby boomers uh, were shaped somehow to think that Suffering is bad and something we should be 
that should be avoided. Uh, and we actually developed a version of the gospel that was all about the avoidance of suffering and getting to heaven when we die. And so we avoided bits of the Bible, like we're going to look at today. Before we get to this bit of the Bible, though, I think we need to, to retrace our steps. Remember, last week, we were looking at the upper room and Jesus' instruction to his followers about communion and the, the way that communion, this meal that he instituted, changes everything. And so we want to track with those disciples on this journey to the cross uh, and so as we come back, can I invite you to, if you're at home, to grab a, 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 a cup with some liquid in it and, and a biscuit. Uh, if you're at Lena Valley or here at Mornington, to get the, the items of communion. And, and, and again, I just want to read for you Jesus' words. And can I encourage you, if you weren't with us last week, I... I there is significance behind what we're about to do now that we spoke about last week at length. And I, one of my fears is often we misunderstand the significance of communion. How communion is about the world being changed and you being changed with it. And it's not just some little symbolic thing we do at church. It is an identification with Jesus and his life. Uh, and so can I encourage you, if you haven't watched the, the message or listened to the message, we have a, a podcast where you can listen to our messages each week. Can I encourage you to, to do that? Because it actually, it's, it's important for us. And I think we want to, as we re-engage with this story, I want to see if we can place ourselves and imagine we're one of the disciples. And remember, so Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 takes a little bit of unleavened bread, he repurposes the Passover meal and says, take and eat, this is my body. So let's take and eat this together. And then a little later on that evening, he took a cup and passed it out and said, drink from this cup. This cup is the blood of the new covenant. The new grace, as John chapter 1 says it. The, the, the symbol of a, a new grace given on top of the old grace. A new way of approaching God. And so he comes and, and says, the only way to life is through my death. And this blood, this symbol of my blood, opens the, the path for you to life. And so as we participate in communion, we identify with who he is. And we say, Jesus, we want your life 
not our lives. We want you to be the centre of our lives. We don't want to be the centre of our lives. And if you're ready to say that, as the disciples, as best they knew on that night, tried to say that, let's drink together. So Jesus, as we come now to track along with your disciples, remembering that night, can I ask, particularly for those under 30, watching this or here in Mornington or at Lena Valley, can you help them hear your message to them? But for all of us, Jesus, forgive us for the wrong ways we've understood what it means to suffer. Help us see through your example and your words what it means to live for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So uh, next week we're going to come back, we're going to jump, we're going to jump over a little bit in your Bibles today. There's a section where Jesus predicts Peter's denial, where just after that communion meal, Jesus says, you guys are going to betray me and Peter particularly, you're going to deny me. And Peter says twice, no, no, I'm not. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And the, the next thing that happens is Jesus takes them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. And so there are, if you go to Jerusalem now, Dan's been there and you can talk to him about what it, you know, what it might actually look like. There are, there are two different places in Jerusalem, that, or just outside Jerusalem, that they think may be this site they're talking about. Uh, and there's one that is a, a, a big cave and there's actually uh, the remains, archaeological remains of oil making, or olive oil making. And there was a, a garden there. And what we know about Gethsemane is it, it, it's a place that Jesus would often come to. And so it must have been some kind of shelter, the place that, that he and the disciples, probably a cave that he and his disciples would shelter in as they would come to Jerusalem, just outside the city. And we get this moment. And again, I, I don't think... I, it's interesting, for, for the early church, this was a pivotal moment. The book of Hebrews ref, references this directly. It's uh, unpacked in terms of Paul's understanding of what redemptive suffering looks like. But often, because our generations grew up in the shadow of two world wars uh, and... And we saw what it meant for our parents and grandparents to suffer. I, I think the baby boomer generation and my generation coming after that pushed against that and said, no, we don't want that, thank you very much. And so we want a nice, safe version of Christianity. That's why I reckon if, if you're under 30 and you can uh, put your phones down enough to hear what I'm saying, I think it'll be important. Because I, I think this is going to, the central question of our lives is how do we deal 
with life when everything's not rosy? What, what sense do we make of the dark moments in our lives? And if you're young and you haven't yet had dark moments, moments where everything in you is screaming out to, for things to change, then that's fantastic. Please listen to this to, as a preparation. But you don't, you don't have to have done many trips around the sun to have got to a point where, where you can identify at least a little bit with what Jesus experienced in Gethsemane would have been like. But let's, let's turn and, and hear what the, the story says. Jesus went with his disciples to Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee, that's uh, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Again, easy to just skip over. A couple of things to note. The Son of God got to a point where he felt like he needed friends. The Son of God wanted his, friend, his friends to be with him in dark moments. And we should hear that deeply because we live in an individualistic world where we kind of want God just to take away all the suffering and it's just my relationship with God. If, if Jesus, the Son of God, wanted fellowship, we should also know we need fellowship. So if you're doing life alone... You've got to know that is not the Christian model. Jesus didn't do life alone. And he was perfect. You need friends. You need fellowship. That's one thing we see here. And another thing we see here is the weight, the sorrow. And for Jesus, this is not something you're going to have to manage... But for Jesus, hard to imagine. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 said, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He could see what was coming. And he, he was dreading it. Have you ever been in moments in your life where you can see what's coming? And you're dreading it. Now, you're not going to have to take on the weight of the world in the way Jesus did. But it's clear that you will have moments, Gethsemane moments. Because Jesus himself said, following him means taking up your cross. Which is, again, something we didn't talk enough about over the last 50 years. So Matthew 26:39 says going a little farther so he puts he, he puts all all the disciples are probably together in the cave then he brings Peter James and John with him close and then going a little farther but not so far as they can't hear what he's saying he it's like he collapses to the ground 
puts his face to the ground and prays, My father, my dad. And it's important to understand for Jesus, and this has to be the foundation for you too, that the foundation of his life was his relationship with God. The foundation of Jesus' whole life and the point of his orientation was, My father. And then we get this incredible prayer. And some people would say, look, if your prayers aren't being answered, it's because you don't have enough faith. And what they mean by that, if your prayers aren't being answered in the affirmative. Well, here we have the Son of God, and what's he praying? If it's possible, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In the Old Testament, which Jesus was really familiar with, the idea of the cup was a picture of God's wrath. It wasn't just so much that Jesus wasn't so scared of dying. It was this picture that the whole weight of sin was coming on him and the the perfect oneness he enjoyed with the Father was about to be ripped into. And we we can't imagine what that meant. In the book of Luke, it tells us that this was so stressful for Jesus that he sweated blood, that the capillaries under his facial skin ruptured and he sweated blood this is a a moment of intense stress and one of the things we have to come to terms with is that sometimes our prayers to be taken out of the dark places will be met with the answer no N.T. Wright says, uh, there are times when we find ourselves in Gethsemane saying, Lord, can this really be the way? If I've been obedient so far, why is all this happening to me? Surely you don't want me to be feeling like this. Sometimes, indeed, the answer may be no. It may be we've taken a wrong turn and, you know, we're, we're suffering because we've been idiots. It's possible. Sometimes, though... The answer is simply that we need to stay in Gethsemane. Sometimes God will answer your prayer with a, with a no. So how do you cope with those moments? Jesus gives us a model. He says, God, this is what I want. But not my will, but yours be done. This, it's, it, he's showing us what faith is. Sometimes everything in you wants God to do something to take away some kind of pain or make things easier for you. Or often what's harder is if you're someone you love going through something hard. And part of the journey is to be able to get to the point of trust and say, 
not my will, but yours be done. That's exactly what Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Just so that we are clear what we're talking about here and, and, and again, um, you won't have to cope with exactly what Jesus had to cope with, but there are going to be Gethsemane moments in your life if there haven't already been. Uh, I'd love it just to take a couple of minutes now, in fact four specifically, uh, for you to turn to the people near you. If you're at home on your own, can I get you to get a pen and see if you can write this down? But if you're at Lena Valley or here at Mornington, turn to the people near you and just chat for a minute about what have been some of your Gethsemane moments. What have been some of your Gethsemane moments? Some of the, the dark moments, the part where, where everything in you is saying, God, get me out of here. I don't want this. Have you ever, have you ever had moments like that? Because we don't want to just talk abstractly. And I'll, Can I encourage you to share to the level you're comfortable with with the people around you? And then in four minutes, the band's just going to come and... Uh, lead us in one chorus and we'll come back and talk about, okay, what do we do about that? How do, what does Jesus' model show us? So let's go, go for it. Four, four minutes, talk about your Gethsemane moments. We're going to pick up the story again, but I'm conscious that even as we start this conversation, it's not an easy conversation. We in the church have not been good at preparing people to cope with Gethsemane moments. Somehow there's been a subtle message in the church that if everything's not joyous and wonderful, something's wrong. We haven't understood Paul's words where we say you rejoice in your sufferings. And we don't even understand where that comes from. That's why we need to understand what's going on for Jesus here. So if you've got your, I encourage you, the, the notes for today's message are in the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, and I really encourage you to be reading along with us because we are taking this journey with Jesus and the disciples to the cross in the lead up to Easter. So after praying that prayer for about an hour, it says, uh, when, he, when Jesus actually now challenges Peter, he says, couldn't you keep watch with me for an hour? all the disciples had fallen asleep. Remember, it had only been a couple of hours earlier, Peter had saying, we're with you forever. <laughs> we're not going to let you down. Two hours later, as he hears Jesus going through the most difficult and darkest moment of his life right now, he hears Jesus' words. We know that because we have them recorded. And he falls asleep. Jesus says to him and through him to the other disciples, something we all need to hear. This is an unusual moment of teaching in the Bible in the context of all that's happening. Jesus says, watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is what you need to hear. 
the lie this world wants you to believe is that there's only one you. The lie this world wants you to believe is that there's only one you. Jesus here makes it clear there's at least two sides to you. There is the beautiful part of you created in the image of God. This is the lowercase s spirit. This is your spirit. And he's saying, your spirit is willing. But the Bible's very clear that there's also a part of you called your flesh. It's the part of you that wants to minimise pain and maximise pleasure. Get as close to anything that feels good and as far away from anything that feels bad as possible. And this is where we need to apologise to you under 30 because we have told you, our generations have told you that that is you. It's not. Those drives to minimise pain and maximise pleasure are part of what it means to be a human being, but they're also part of what it means to be a puppy dog. Your pet dog also wants to minimise pain and maximise pleasure and you use rewards and punishments to train a dog. There is part of you, Ecclesiastes says, that is bigger than time and space. And Jesus says, you need to do two things. You need to watch. You need to be honest with yourself. To be conscious of both sides of you. And you need to pray. You need to actively and actually reach out to the part of you that is created in the image of God and through that part of you to the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says it is through our spirit that the Holy Spirit testifies that we are God's children. Our spirit created in the image of God is not the Holy Spirit. It's part of who you are. The Holy Spirit connects with us through our spirits. Romans 8, 16, if you want to look that up. So the antidote to the flesh is an alert humility. It's being honest with yourself that there is part of you that just wants to minimise pain and maximise pleasure, but that that's not all of who you are. And we've built a world that has betrayed a generation that tells them they should find their meaning in minimising pain and maximising pleasure. Our, if you think about the darkest, most challenging moments of your life, they are the moments where your flesh is screaming to go a different direction to your spirit. So Jesus gives them this toolkit that they will then relay to us and that we'd be talking about 2,000 years later. Then he goes back and prays again. And he says, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What does it mean to have faith? If you want to be a person of faith, you want to be a Jesus follower, it means consciously choosing 
God's will over your feeling world. And again, we need to apologise to the generation under 30 where we've told you, feel free to choose God's will as long as it feels right. Nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that that's a good idea. And here we have the Son of God demonstrating what faith looks like to us. And so he goes away and prays, and he comes back, and he goes, goes away and comes back. When he comes back, he fi- finds them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. This is verse 43. So he came to them, went away and prayed again. Thir- three times he goes. Then he returns to the disciples and says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Don't you understand? Interestingly, in Luke, it's important to know this, that there will be times in your Gethsemane moments where the people who normally support you in the good times are not focused on you in the bad times. Uh, Just like Jesus' mates who were with him completely two hours earlier and sound asleep. In Luke, we're told God actually sends an angel to be with Jesus in this moment because his mates let him down. And the central promise of our faith, even encapsulated in the, the beautiful psalm, Psalm 23, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because you are with me. God was with Jesus in this moment, carrying him even though his friends weren't. Jesus comes and says, and probably he's hearing the sound of soldiers coming from a distance, knowing this is the moment, and this is the prayer, the answer to Jesus' prayer. He's prayed, God, can I please not do this? And the soldiers arriving are the answer to that prayer. Sorry, son, this is the only way. And he says to the disciples, rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. The word betrayer is used like 15 times in this chapter. It's clear what the other disciples felt about Judas. Uh, We don't see it always coming out. For instance, when it says delivered into the hands in the NIV, the actual word there is betrayed into the hands. It's used over and over again. Many of the Bible translations you use try not to use the same words over again to make it more interesting but it's clear the disciples wanted you to understand Judas betrayed Jesus with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people now interesting that they don't even use Judas name at this point they say now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, last week we talked about the difference between Judas and the other disciples. The other disciples, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they said, surely not me, Lord. And Judas said, surely not me, Rabbi. The fundamental question of your life is, is Jesus actually Lord? Because we've betrayed a generation 
and told them that life should always be feeling right, then your feelings actually are Lord in your life, if you believe that. Jesus isn't Lord, your feelings are. Sorry about that. That is not what the Bible teaches. Judas here, again, doesn't come and say, you know, he doesn't say, greetings, Lord. Again, he says, greetings, Rabbi. A rabbi is a Jewish teacher, someone who... You can, who teaches ideas and whose students learn from. It's safer to treat Jesus like a teacher with nice ideas that you can pick and choose from. Particularly, you can avoid the ones that cause you to feel uncomfortable. More than that, Judas, one of the things we don't pick up in the scripture here, uh, for a, a disciple of a rabbi, they would never speak first to the rabbi. The disciple of a rabbi would never greet the rabbi first. By greeting Jesus first, what Judas is actually saying is, I am equal to you. I am equal to you. Just as Adam and Eve in the garden wanted to say to God, we are equal to you. And that there is part of you, if you're to be honest, that wants to say to God, I'd like to have you around but only for the bits I like. Because I am equal to you. It's the great temptation that has been the temptation throughout of human history, throughout human history. How do you when 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 someone you love hurts you? What's the normal response? What's the normal response? How does Jesus respond? He says, do what you came for, friend. Jesus refuses to hate. Jesus chooses to love. He has taught his disciples to love their enemies. And one of the truths of humanity is that it's the people closest to you who are most able to hurt you. And Jesus chooses not to dehumanise Judas. He chooses not to see him as the enemy. He chooses to look him in the eyes and call him friend. Modelling for his disciples the kind of life he's calling them to. Peter doesn't quite get that. So he draws his sword. I'm not sure what he think he's, thinks he's doing. We know that there's a whole, like, I think there's 120 soldiers, I think, from memory, the number of soldiers that are there. And the disciples are 12, as we can tell, uh, and they have between them two swords. Peter draws one of those swords and declares war on the whole Roman Empire. I'm not sure how he thinks it's going to end. But remember, 
The disciples were looking for a kingdom that comes with power, a kingdom that reorders the world so that they are the centre of the world and that they have power. Jesus says to Peter, put it away, Peter. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. It's so tempting, isn't it? When you see somebody doing something to you that hurts, it's so tempting to want to lash out and fight back and force them. Use force to fix them. We've talked about this before. You can look it up. The myth of redemptive violence is what sells Marvel movies, that somehow you can fix the world by being a bigger bad guy than the bad guys, that violence can bring peace. That is the myth that our generation has bought. We look for a bigger bully to beat up the bullies. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't get it. Violence doesn't fix things. But again here, we Christians need to apologise. Because sometimes we've divided the world between the good guys and the bad guys and we think it's our job to fix up the bad guys. We've dehumanised. I don't know how we read our Bible and think that somehow it's okay to see those people as the enemy. The moment you are pointing at somebody else as the problem, you are no longer following Jesus. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelagos. He was a, a communist. And the communists thought that the rich people were the problem, so they got rid of them. They killed them. And then they had this challenge because the problems didn't finish. So they thought, well, maybe there's traitors amongst us. And so they started killing each other and sending each other off to Siberia. They kept thinking that the problem is out there. Solzhenitsyn, from prison in Siberia, wrote... If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing all the bad things that happen in the world. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line defining good and evil isn't between people. It cuts through every human heart. This is what Jesus has just told his disciples. There's a couple of bits of you, if you're to be honest. And this is where Christians have caused all kinds of damage because we think we're good and we don't acknowledge the part of us that is dark and broken. So grateful the Apostle Paul had the courage to be honest and say, the things I want to do, I don't do. Can you acknowledge that? So again, we've built a church 
and Christianity around the idea that if bad things are happening, there's something wrong, rather than the understanding that if bad things are happening, that's just part of often an expression of the one side of who we are. And we've got to learn to watch and pray. It's interesting, in John we learn that the high priest's servant's ear, who Peter successfully cuts off, Jesus sort of bends down, dusts it off and puts it back on his head. And uh, I don't know how you'd cope with something like that. That was Jesus' last recorded miracle before the cross. It's interesting, in John, which was the last gospel written, we know the guy's name, Malchus. Some people think that probably means that John knew the guy, that he probably eventually comes to faith and joins the church. But we get now to... Jesus explaining why he was able to cope with this incredible level of suffering. And you need to hear this because you need to understand how to cope with the suffering that happens in your life. He says initially to Peter, Peter, don't you get it? I don't need your power. I don't need your sword. I have to click my fingers and a whole battalion of angels turn up. I am not short of power. I love the, one of the lyrics from one of the U2 albums uh, is uh, stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. God doesn't need your help. God is not short of power. But why is this happening? If it didn't happen, Jesus says, how would the scriptures be fulfilled and say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran. Jesus was able to go through the most horrific suffering any human being has ever been through. Because he understood there was a purpose in the pain. There was a bigger story. Jesus didn't deny his feeling world. He acknowledged his feeling world before his father. You're dangerous if you're not able to acknowledge your feeling world. Please be honest with God. He's a big boy. And if the only way you can pray is to swear, please swear at God. Acknowledge your feelings. But understand there is a bigger story at play. Jesus understood that all that he was going through was part of this story. And this is where we've betrayed you if you're under 30. We've told you that your life is all about you. 
And so when you're suffering, then something feels like it's going wrong. No, what you need to understand is what Jesus understood, that your story is part of this story. Your story is part of a bigger story. And there is meaning. There is purpose in the pain. It's not superficial. It's not light. But it is God's plan to redeem the universe through his people. I'm nervous about the number of people who don't read the Bible. The number of people who have, you know, have the verse of the day pop up and think that's, that's good. Or listen to some worship songs and think that's good. This, the word of God is living and active, sharper than double-edged sword, able to divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It, this is what helps you know the difference between your spirit and your flesh, to know the bigger story you're part of. One of the men who can most ably talk about suffering was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was a, a Jewish man who was locked away in one of the concentration camps. He had been a Freudian psych psychiatrist, psychotherapist, uh, and he discovered in that concentration camp something that, if he'd read Jesus here, it would have been obvious, but uh, something that people didn't know how to make sense of, and that was this. He says, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds meaning. Suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds meaning. Or to put it this way, life is never made unbearable by circumstances but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. And so the way we have betrayed you under 30 is we've told you that life doesn't have meaning and purpose, that the central purpose of your life is to feel good while you can, and if, if, if somehow you're suffering, there's something wrong, but you need to understand the incredible dignity that you are a child of God, and he, you're not here as an accident. There is a meaning to your life. And sometimes life is going to be difficult and painful. Sometimes it's going to feel like Gethsemane. Can I encourage you to read the Bible and let it shape you and understand the big story you're part of? And also hear the words of Psalm 23. When you walk through those valleys of shadows of death, you don't need to fear any evil because he is with you. When you lose sight of those two things, you're only left with your pain and your pain sets the agenda. And so you'll try and medicate it, either legally or illegally. And it never works. Your life has profound meaning 
because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're invited into the grand adventure. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for our wrong thinking that somehow if there is pain, there's something wrong. Like we acknowledge that sometimes the pain we experience is our own fault and we want to bring that to you and let you deal with that. But also we understand that life is difficult and we are going to have Gethsemane moments and you promise to be with us in those Gethsemane moments. Help us keep our eyes on you but also, Jesus... Can you please build us as your followers, as your disciples? Can you save us from bumper sticker, cliched faith? Can you help us be open to your big story? The story that makes sense of the ups and downs of our lives. Help us find the purpose in the pain. Help us hold tightly to you. We need your help, Jesus. We acknowledge that. We want to follow you with everything we have, but we need your help. Help us be honest with you and with each other. We ask this in your name. Amen.